Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by our panel of former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. This is the show where we dive in and get beyond the week's headlines and get a balanced perspective from the left, right, and center. But now we have to dive right into the week's headlines because probably the biggest economic and political story of the week is unfolding as we record this on Tuesday morning, September 13th, which is the new numbers in on inflation. For a year, the political narrative was that high inflation was going to be the thing that sunk the Democrats' prospects more than anything else, not even the crushing weight of history, that inflation was going to be the big deal that finally did Democrats in in the midterms. Then, for about a month, we've been talking about a new counter-narrative that maybe the easing off of inflation, drops in gas prices and other core economic prices would maybe give Democrats a breath of life. And now, as we record this, the news has come in that inflation remained uncomfortably high in August in a new set of numbers that have come out. The August Consumer Price Index report showed that headline inflation rose 0.1% between July and August, even with rapidly declining gas prices, a 10% drop in the price of gas. Core inflation, that's without energy and food prices, which are really volatile, rose 0.6% month over month. So over year, year over year, inflation was up to 8.3%. Alicia, does this present a a prospect of once again resetting the entire political narrative? I think it absolutely does. Now, I wish it weren't because I actually care more about my gas and grocery bills than I care about politics. But this certainly will help Republicans if this maintains. Um, And and I think it's unfortunate. I, I think we are in a very difficult time. I, I think, you know, I go back to this Inflation Reduction Act that was a bald-faced lie to the American people because it clearly has nothing to do with reducing inflation. And, you know, I think Congress needs to get their act together, do something that can actually help us. You know, I'm in a household where our income has not gone up, and yet our cost of living has gone up dramatically in the past six months to a year. And it is hurting American families. And putting politics aside, you know, our politicians aren't just there to be politicians. They're there to be leaders. And I'd like to see someone take some action. But on a political point, yeah, Democrats thought they thought they were seeing a light at the end of the tunnel of this, and it just got darker. So what, Paul, what Alicia you, is aggressively on message there. I assume yeah, that you yeah, yeah, too yeah. will be aggressively on message. Oh, I'm aggressively on message. So, so <laughs> Alicia, what do you think? What do you think should be done that isn't being done? There's the question. And what have Republicans proposed that ought to be done that should be done? The answer is nada. And meanwhile, while you whine about the title of a recent piece of legislation and call it... Hey, folks, Matt here. So you probably heard in what Paul was saying that there were some audio technical difficulties creeping in. This is the modern age we live in. Sometimes you get weird technology stuff and technology is awesome. It allows us to record these shows, not in an old fashioned radio recording studio, which is great, but occasionally the gremlins get us. The gremlins- It's the Russians, the Russians. The Russians, well, you know, that's frequently true. The the Mm -hmm. trolls and the bots and the bot trolls attack us. And the, the gremlins are all over Paul. 
we've gotten him back, Paul. You were just saying that you you think that the whole presentation of the inflation story from the Republican side is is full of falsehoods. You you don't you don't buy the fa- the foundational myth that Republicans are selling here. Yeah, I mean, look, the foundational myth is, and 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 I credit Republicans with picking up. Uh, on an issue that affects Americans, which is inflation. But the Republicans don't have anything to offer for solutions on inflation. They're just trying to bash Democrats because Democrats ought to be doing something else, but nobody knows what. And in fact, inflation is one of those things that is the bugaboo of politics, but is always a challenge to do something about. I remember when I was campaigning and serving and gas prices would go up, it would cause panic in the ranks about the price of gas um, from a political standpoint. Same thing is happening now. It's true that the inflation numbers are not uh, as uh, going as quite as well as we had hoped. Our inflation is more moderate than, say, what's going on in Europe. Um, gas prices are, are, are way down. And that's, frankly, a pretty good political thing for Democrats, because that's what's so publicly displayed everywhere everybody goes are gas prices. Luckily for Democrats, the price of bread and milk uh, are not displayed on billboards all over the country. So with gas prices coming down, even though the inflation numbers aren't as great as everybody hoped, I'd say it's probably a draw politically, but it doesn't help uh, the Democrats' narrative, which was everything's getting rosier. Um, Meanwhile, the Republican narrative is everything's in the tank. You know, I find it interesting that you and other Democrats keep mocking people like me and my fellow Republicans for, quote unquote, whining over, you know, the title of a bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. And why is because it's not funny. My government said they were going to help me and they lied, number one about doing that and they're not doing anything to help me you say well republicans oh, have to oh, hold on you said republicans have oh, to come up with a solution stop. no we don't we're not in charge i'm going to presume there's a solution want to know why because the democrats told me there was one when they passed a bill entitled that there was a solution that told me there's something to do republicans aren't in charge you guys are you guys come up with the solutions you pass them and you lower our inflation rates because right now it's out of control but what i do like is that you guys keep mocking me and those like me because you're mocking american families and you are absolutely minimizing the fact that there are families who cannot afford to put food on their tables right now so first of all i want to point out that alicia is totally right that when she whines that is something to worry about because wine is one of those items where prices are rising rapidly uh in fact grocery items are one of those core uh, issue. Well, it's not core inflation. I'm mixing terms there, but it is one of those items where prices continue to rise, and that's offsetting the massive drop in gasoline prices. You know, I, which I is actually th- why I'm so angry. It's the well, wine pricing. It's the wine pricing. Well, you know, and beer pricing. I, we all we all know the you story know. on you, Preston. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I I do think that you have a point, but I I, I want to. I just want to caution people that, first of all, these numbers are preliminary, and often there's a, there's a sort of Zen wisdom that goes with economic numbers, which is, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see how it plays. And that's because the most important figure to watch is actually the news media narrative coverage of what happens. We did an episode with Dr. Joanne Shu, who directs the Michigan Consumer Sentiment 
index. And she had this absolutely fantastic graph. I know I'm the kind of nerd who gets excited about graphs, but whatever. And it showed- Graph and fantastic in the same sentence. I know. It showed how people- (laughs) how people's perceptions of the economy were absolutely tied to how much good news or bad news they'd read in the media about the economy. So everything that you hear Alicia Preston saying makes total sense. She can't help it as much as she's not exhibiting schadenfreude here and rooting against America. Yeah, I used a big German word. Get used to it. (laughs) She's not rooting against America here. She is delivering the talking point party line because it's the political incentive of the Republicans to do what Paul is saying and say the sky is falling. Inflation is terrible. Democrats are trying to bankrupt your family. Ha 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 ha. And Paul is exhibiting the Democrats talking points, which makes sense. Of course, that's the that's the end you're coming from, which is this isn't that bad. Gas prices are coming down. That's what matters. The overall narrative remains good. And I think that that's the tussle that you're going to see here is which way does the narrative go? Because that is going to determine how people feel about this. Remember that over the last year, we have a ton of survey data showing that people felt that their own personal financial situation was really good. 80% of people were telling pollsters that their personal financial situation was very strong at the same time that only 14% were saying that the economy overall was good. Why? Because they keep reading and hearing about in the media, the inflation is terrible, the economy is terrible. I'm not saying that they're not experiencing that in their own lives. I'm actually not accusing you, Alicia, of whining per se. I'm just saying that our perception of what's going on around us is very much shaped by what we imbibe through the media. So I I, I think it's too soon to tell. It's actually more determined by what I can afford to imbibe. Well, your perceptions of everything definitely do depend on what you are imbibing. I do think it, it, is- it all comes through the loaf of bread. Right. Well, but also, Paul, you're you're not wrong. The gas prices are are maybe the biggest driver of people's economic perceptions when it comes to inflation. I mean, I remember in 2008 when there was a bad summer of gas prices, you had to cut ads all about gas prices and it's you pumping gas saying uh-huh. to right. camera high gas prices it's hurting everybody and you're shaking your head and you're looking oh so sad i mean there were a lot of politicians having to do that kind of thing i do think the fall in gas prices is very significant so anyway i call this one a a little bit too soon to tell but yeah democrats should be worried that there's a little bit of a, a skid in their counter narrative all right, Paul, Alicia agrees. She's in stunned silence. Paul, you're, you're relegated to the land of the gremlins. Um, I'll add one thing because Paul came up with an excellent idea for Republicans across the country. He noted gas prices coming down. They're, of course, on billboards across the country. There aren't milk. Fortunately, there aren't milk prices across the country. I think that's a brilliant idea. I think campaigns across the country should buy out billboards and put up comparative egg and milk prices everywhere. That's not that a bad idea. A, the o- that, the that's a thing. pretty good political move. Yeah. It's not a bad political move. The only thing, the only thing that Republicans should be careful about is, you know, round one, September 13th, kind of to Republicans on this. But we've got eight weeks to go before the election. And I think the danger for them is they have put all their eggs, which cost more than they did a year ago, in one (laughs) basket politically, which is inflation. They have, as Paul was alluding to, developed absolutely no policy prescriptions, no other messaging talking points. They've put everything on inflation. For a long time, that was working for them. 
And it's still probably going to work. To be clear, I would still bet on Republicans taking the House and winning some key governors and state legislative seats and maybe taking the Senate as well. But there is a risk in not diversifying your political attack a little bit more. Let's go from a kind of, you know, jump ball political topic to a profoundly serious topic, which is the war in Ukraine. This is a show where while we get perspectives from the left, right and center that frequently diverge, as they just did on inflation, we have been in tremendous unity when it comes to the issue of the Russian war in Ukraine. And now comes the news over the weekend that the Ukrainian counteroffensive that started in the south, that was largely a feint uh, in the three fronts of the war going on there, has been carried forward to great success in the north. They've taken back a, an amount of territory that that is the size of the state of Rhode Island. And there are now signs that maybe they're turning the, the tide of the entire war. And it's very much on the back of the kind of aid that they've been getting a billion dollars a week in military aid from the United States. Paul, I want to turn to you first. I don't want to overfocus on the politics of this because this is a deadly serious human issue. But what do you make geopolitically of where we are and how the US has fared in navigating its way through as an ally of Ukraine? Um so I think that uh, the war in Ukraine has, by and large, uh, produced um, the kind of unity uh, in this country that um, is unusual in the era of tribal politics. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the dissension uh, is really muted domestically. And at the same time, I think that uh, there is concern in some quarters about the, um, the, the extent uh, of what will be necessary to sustain uh, any military gains that the Ukrainians have made. And that also extends to uh, our allies. This is a time of a great test for the coalition that President Biden has put together and led to uh, defend democracy in, in the Ukraine, because uh, Vladimir P Putin is not giving up. Um, he is not giving up, and he, uh, while he, the Russians have suffered a defeat, a uh, big defeat, and they appear to be having issues with supply chains and troops, and all the things that the military, Russian military might need for a, a counter offensive. Um, they're a huge power. And Putin, uh, Putin is not a, he just is not a guy who gives up. So um, the Ukrainians may be on the threshold of doing, uh, of achieving militarily what people hope they would through the attrition in, in Russia, and there's now grumbling going on in Russia that really we haven't heard before. But that said, the big challenge for the U.S. and its allies will be, can we keep this coalition together? Can we, in fact, ramp up uh, our aid and assistance in Ukraine to try to preserve and expand 
the gains that the Ukrainians have made. And, you know, look, I'm, I, I'm an anti-war guy from way back. This is a different story for me. Uh, there is an absolute, there needs to be an absolute commitment to pushing back militarily in every way possible against the insanity that Putin has visited on Ukraine. Alicia? You know, I'm very proud of America's involvement in this, um, and I continue to support both armament aid and funding aid to the Ukraine. We see that it's having a beneficial effect. I saw the news of the great gains the Ukrainians made over Russian-occupied territory, and I had to stop myself because I felt myself feeling that excitement and energy uh, as though I were cheering on our own troops. Um, we have a kinship with the Ukrainians now. It, you know, in my heart and my mind, people, I've said this to people in my fellow Republicans said, well, how much money is enough? How much arms are enough? And I go, I don't know. I'll let you know in my heart and my mind hit that level where I think we've done enough, but I'm willing to do more. And why I say heart and mind is this. There's that feeling of a fellow democracy who's fighting so hard against the big giant. And when they start to succeed, that's hard not to be emotional and enjoy watching, you know, the power of these people, of these people to fight for their own country. But then in my brain, there's also this other thing. And, you know, the far right or kind of more the libertarians don't understand is there is a global impact of this. You cannot just let Russia take over another country. It's then bordering up against NATO nations, which will force us to go in on boots on the ground. Like there is so much around this. And, you know, there are some Republicans running who say no, you know, aid to Ukraine. And I have said I'm willing to bet almost every one of them. When they got if they got into Congress and they learned the details and the true global impact of this would change your mind and would vote for aid to Ukraine. So whether it's your heart or your mind, I stand behind President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. I continue to feel, first of all, again, as I said a moment ago, that I think this show has reflected what has been a, a remarkably good level of unanimity politically in America throughout the course of this war. And I'm kind of proud of that. I'm kind of proud of the kinds of conversations we've been able to have, but more broadly that the political system has been able to have. It shows that what we do in America can still work. We, we fight about all kinds of things and all kinds of stupid stuff, but on certain issues, it can still work. And in fact, as I've said on this show before, I think that the last seven months have shown the strength of our political system, that that's our greatest strength, that we're able to weigh different points of view. We're able to find smart, evidence-based ways forward. We're able to marshal the, the strength of the expertise in the Department of State and the Defense Department in a way that Vladimir Putin never could. And you think about those images of him isolated at the far end of a conference table, kind of going about whatever whim entered his mind. Of course, there is a danger here because we have a former U.S. president and someone who may become U.S. president again who likes the Putin model, who praised this war at its inception as a genius move. And you know I'm talking about Donald Trump there. So there are threats. There are threats to us. But so far, yes. I mean, this the, the, la the last seven months have shown the strength of democracy, the strength of our political system, and we have navigated this from a policy standpoint as well as we can as an ally. And Welcome back to the Balance of Power Roundtable broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get 
your podcast. I'm Matt Robeson with conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston and former U.S. Congressman, Democrat Paul Hodes, who unfortunately was attacked by technical gremlins right before the break. And so you're going to hear him not sounding as great as we like to bring our voices to you. We do apologize for that. But he is here. He is with us. And now we get to turn to some pure politics. Let's talk about the Senate Republican primary that is unfolding as we speak. It's in the words of the philosopher Perd Happily, it's breaking news that just keeps on breaking. So the primary is going on right now. The last few days have been weird. We've seen a super PAC come in to help Chuck Morse in his attempt to overcome his polling deficit against Don Bolduc. We've seen Democrats come in and try to hurt Chuck Morse and try to elevate the candidate, Don Bolduc, who they see as crazier, but more beatable, kind of a high-risk strategy. And then on Friday, actually it was late Thursday night, we saw popular incumbent, incumbent Republican Governor Chris Sununu, also on the ballot himself, endorse Chuck Morse. Alicia, you are a resident expert. You have moderated a Republican Senate primary debate. You are tied in to what is going on in insider circles among Republicans in New Hampshire. I'm not asking you for a prediction, but you'd better be right about what you're about to say. <laughs> What do you guys see? What is happening? What do you what do you expect to happen? I, look, I don't know. I mean, the Chris Nunu endorsement of Chuck Morse uh, came in very late. Not that I'm criticizing Governor Sununu because we all know I'm on a long term campaign to be on his presidential campaign one day. But I think it came a little too late to be hugely effective. You can't get it up on TV ads. You can't get it in mail. You can only do so much with it. Um, and Morse is significantly behind in the polls. The problem is. If Don Bolduc, who I respect as a former general for the United States of America, if he gets the nomination, he cannot beat Maggie Hassan, which is why the Democrats are involved here, which I think is very icky. I hope no party ever does that to another party again. Let us handle our own in-family fighting and decision-making within our parties. Um, Chuck Morse is a formidable guy if he can get through the primary, but I'm hearing very low turnout across the state of New Hampshire so far today, and that makes me wonder, is that low turnout mean it is the uh, Trump era diehards that are coming out to vote. If that is the case, that bodes well for Don Bolduc. It bodes well for the more MAGA type congressional candidates. Uh, and that concerns me because if that is the result, we cannot win in November. This state is 40 percent independent. That is 40% of the people that identify with neither party. If you do not identify with Republicans today, you are not going to choose and identify with the with the hard right of the Republican Party in November. So I don't know what's going to happen. I'm hoping, you know, 30% undecided coming into today could be enough to put Morse over the edge, but we need some strategic voters. Paul, I'm going to do a favor for our friend Alicia here. I'm not going to ask her a question that she does not want to answer. She just set up the, the seeming mystery of why the heck would you endorse so late so that you're kind of doing it. It seems like you're grudgingly doing it. If you're Chris Sununu, you know, you're on the record doing it, but it's not timed to actually help the candidate you're endorsing all that much. You just interviewed Kevin Landrigan, who's the dean of the New Hampshire Press Corps. For our podcast listeners outside New Hampshire, we do all of these shows on WKXL Radio. But then we take 
the podcasts that tend to appeal to a national audience, and we put them in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. For those that are more focused on New Hampshire-specific issues, we have a separate podcast called Capital Close-Up. So your interview with Kevin, our old friend Kevin, is in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed. You just talked to him about the big primary day. Did he give you any insights into the timing and sort of the weird strategy that went into this Sununu endorsement? What we, uh, among the things we discussed was that there is all kinds of speculation um, and reporting that uh, Governor Sununu, who has, you know, played fast and loose with his affection for Donald Trump, sometimes he's with him, sometimes he's not. He's trying to hew that line that creates Teflon coating with independence, um, was, has been trying to push Donald Trump to endorse his guy, Chuck Morse. The Sununus and the Morse families go way, way, way back in politics. They're, they're dear friends, and Morse is seen as the more establishment, less whack job, MAGA crazy candidate. Um, and so it would seem pretty obvious that Sununu would want to back uh, uh, Morse. But the speculation was that he was waiting uh, to try to push Trump to support Morse, which did not happen. Uh, And in fact, Trump was heard on um, a talk show saying nice things about Don Balduck. But in the end, Trump did not put his finger on the scale in this Republican primary. What's at stake for Sununu is kind of interesting. Um, he's got a uh, three. He's got three opponents in a primary. Uh, he's popular. It's likely he is going to win. The question is, by how much will he win? If uh, it, Landrigan and I talked about uh, something like, well, look, if he gets under seventy percent, uh, doesn't that show a significant weakness for Sununu? And uh, will his endorsement of Morse help him or hurt him in his gubernatorial primary? Well, maybe it, it, it won't help him with the likely Republican uh, primary voters who are generally the far-right whack-job MAGA crazies that have taken over Alicia's party. Um, maybe it'll help him with some independents who say, well, I'll go and I'll choose a Republican ballot because I can, and uh, I'll vote for Sununu in the gubernatorial primary, and I'll weigh in because I would prefer um, I would prefer Morse to 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 Boulder because he's got a slightly better chance of beating Hassett. But but there's a lot on the line in this endorsement for Sununu, and I think he waited till the last moment because he really didn't want to pitch in. Alicia, for our radio and podcast listeners. You were just giving the equivalent of the Michaela Maroney is not impressed face. Would you like to give voice to your meme or should we move on? I just think if, if look, if we're talking about whether Sununu only gets 60 percent of the vote or 65 percent of the vote, I think we're just fine. And I'm not sure he's sweating it too hard. <laughs> Got it. Well, look, again, we all do know that your dearest wish is for West Ham to win a Premier League uh, Cup and for you to be the communications director on the Sununu for President 2024 campaign, I hope that your fondish wishes 
are met. I, I do want to just bring in a wrinkle here for our national listeners who may not be as into the vagaries of the New Hampshire Senate primary. I do think that you're right, Alicia, that if Bolduc emerges today, the domino that will fall next is that the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is the branch of the Republican National Committee that funds Senate races, will have serious questions about Bolduc's competitiveness against incumbent Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. They have already pulled some of the advertising that they were planning to put in. They haven't put up a lot of ad time reservations in New Hampshire so far. The other thing that's going on is that Democrats are in a much better financial position when it comes to Senate races than Republicans are. The National Republican Senatorial Committee has run into financial problems. They've spent most of their money raising more money, and the coffers are kind of dry right now. There have been recriminations. There's been reporting about Mitch McConnell meeting with Peter Thiel, the ultra-wealthy Republican donor, and trying to get Thiel to sort of take some of the weight of the financial needs here. So the problem is that Republicans are kind of scrambling. They've canceled some of the ad time that they would have had in some of these Senate races around the country. And remember, when you make these reservations early, you do it because you're locking in a better price. By canceling that ad time, you're letting go of that, which means if you come back in, you get fewer ads on the air, less communication, less effectiveness. Democrats are in a better position. If this New Hampshire Senate race becomes something that both sides have to invest less in, that helps Democrats more. Democrats have more resources to work with here. Republicans are sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel. So that's sort of the implication that, that I just wanted to point to quickly here is that this could be the kind of thing where Democrats get a double bonus. They could get to save a seat, and also they could get more resources to help their other endangered members. I just want to. And by the way, let, let, I, I agree, but let me just also just a point of information is that Don Bolduc has something like $90,000 in his kitty, and Maggie Hassan has $7.5 million. Right. Yet another reason that the national groups may not look to come in and invest substantially. Sorry, go ahead, Alicia. I was saying, I have no doubt in my mind that both the Republican and the Democratic Party will bail on the U.S. Senate race if Don Bolduck is the nominee. We have every indication from the Republican National Committee that they will not commit any funds if he is the nominee. And we have indication today, Chuck Schumer's PAC had very recently added $5 million in expenditures, $1 million intended to go to Maggie Hassan, that that million dollars will also be taken out of New Hampshire to put be put somewhere else if indeed Don Bolduck is the nominee. That makes entire sense. I, exactly. So, I mean, I think that's that's what's really on the line nationally here when you're talking about kind of a 50-50 toss-up on whether Democrats will hold on to the Senate. Holding one seat is in itself a huge deal, but it also could kind of be a rising tide that lifts some other boats here. Okay. Um, you know, I, I I think I think we can move on generally from that topic. Let's get into some of the atmospherics of what's kind of going on behind the scenes. A couple of interesting stories in the end of last week, over the weekend, that I think we should touch on very briefly. One is a major New York Times story about Democrats' efforts to legally bar Donald Trump from being president again. 
And the argument is, look, we have a ticking clock. Per our last discussion here, very good chance the Democrats lose the House, pretty decent chance the Democrats lose the Senate. Plus, you know, we could have all kinds of problems on the state level with who has standing and who changes offices, et cetera. This may be the fleeting window. So I want to turn to you guys to ask for your sense of the arguments each way here. I have to admit that I could actually see it either way. On the one hand, if you truly believe that, Demo- that that Donald Trump is a threat to American democracy, that if he were reelected, that we could see the end of um, the American system of government as we know it, it does seem like you should do everything possible in your power to head that off. And that would weigh in on the side of, yeah, if there are legal steps that would keep Donald Trump from running for president again, you should take them. On the other hand, I wonder if that only creates a martyr and only strengthens the underlying MAGA movement. So, Paul, I'm going to turn to you first on this. What do you think? Well, first of all, let's understand uh, the basis for the question. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, provides, uh, and this was in, and it was enacted in 1868, the 14th Amendment, of course, is best known as the Equal Protection Clause. But Section 3 prevents any government official who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. from holding office again. And there are dozens of Democratic lawmakers who are speaking quietly and speaking publicly about applying the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to, to Trump, whom they is accused of inciting the January 6th riot, disrupting the congressional certification, um, and that uh, qualifies for for them and many others as engaging in insurrection. And then you've got the whole Trump plot and all of that. So in light of our other discussions about the possibility or probability that Trump will be indicted and found guilty of a crime which would bar him from serving in office, the 14th Amendment does not require a conviction of a crime, but it's also silent about the mechanism for its application. Should it be, is it something that the House of Representatives does by by a vote? Um, uh, Lawrence Tribe noted a legal scholar uh, says the determination would need to be by a federal court or a neutral fact-finding body. There are numerous left-leaning groups who want the states to simply exclude the president if he should seek to run for office again uh, as somebody has, who has engaged in insurrection. And, and, a, and, and the group Free Speech for the People uh, wrote, in, wrote that in a letter sent to chief election officials in all 50 states last summer. So you've got, you've got um, practical details uh, that are challenging in terms of the application of uh, the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, and then the question is, is it a good idea or bad idea? I think opinions fall along the same lines uh, as those who say, yes, he should go to jail. And no, don't put him in jail. 
um, uh, if it will be a challenge to to achieve a criminal conviction against the former president, uh, as it is to achieve a criminal conviction against anyone. And um, uh, in light of that, and in light of the danger he poses to our democracy, the clear and present danger that so many now see, um, uh, it's it's a, it's it's good to have a fallback. And that fallback is we can't let this guy be president again. We just can't. So find a way to invoke the third section three of the 14th Amendment. I had somebody find that he's engaged in insurrection and is barred from holding office. Alicia, you're an anti-Trump Republican. What do you think? I think this wouldn't be a slippery slope. This would be a massive avalanche and an affront to democracy. Unless Donald Trump is convicted of a crime. And then we can talk about that then. That's a different story. At this moment, all Congress would be doing is telling the American people who they're allowed to vote for. We don't do this. We are a nation of laws. We have said this repeatedly through this entire process of Donald Trump, January 6th and all of it. At the Mar-a-Lago raid, we are a nation of laws. You cannot, you cannot punish somebody unless they've been convicted of something. That has not happened. The mere idea that our elected leaders in Congress, one of the highest houses in our land, is considering taking away the rights of the American people, activeness and democracy is uh, shameful. It's an affront to the very thing they claim they're trying to protect. And again, unless Donald Trump is convicted of a crime, this should not be on the lips of any American who appreciates democracy. Wait a second. Wait a second. How do you how do you respond to the fact that it, it's written in it's it's in our Constitution? It's in the 14th Amendment. And it doesn't say anybody who's con- been convicted of the crime of inciting insurrection or seditious conspiracy. It says anyone who is engaged in insurrection. And, and if there yes, isn't a, ju- a lot. Wait a second. Wait a second. It leaves a lot open. But the fact that it leaves it open doesn't mean that there needs to be a criminal conviction according to the Constitution. Now, it, it's, it's, it's a case of first impression, but then again, so is Donald Trump and his criminal and his, and his treacherous insurrection conspiracy. So he's a case of first impression. And I know that hard cases sometimes make bad law, but if it's in the Constitution, all those fundamental constitutionalists who make up the Republican uh, uh, panoply of saying, hey, we don't if it's in, we want to take the words literally that are in the Constitution should are hardly could be seen to complain if we have to figure out a method by which there's a determination that he's engaged in insurrection um, because it's not dictated in the Constitution. But it there- does, what it doesn't say is there needs to be a criminal conviction. The idea that there is anything in the Constitution, anything in the Constitution that says someone can be punished by our government without due process is preposterous. And as a lawyer, you know that you want him to be convicted. You want him to be barred because you don't want him president. I don't want him to be president either. I actually don't even think he's going to run. But you do not throw out the foundation of our nation because you don't like that one guy. And I happen to also believe America is stronger than any one president, no matter how many times he holds that office. Well, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that there oughtn't to be a process that uh, qualifies as due process. All I'm saying is 
uh, there doesn't need to be a criminal conviction according to the Constitution. So we may have to figure out the process. And I don't know whether it's state election officials who make the determination he's engaged in insurrection, we're keeping him off, or it's a federal court, or it's Congress. Um, it's a, it, that's a challenging question. But the one thing that it seems to say is you don't need to, you, if you've engaged in insurrection, you would, then you're disqualified from holding office. Well, well I just want to point that, out, it, it, the idea that a point bunch out of partisans. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, Alicia, I was going to come in and, and I, I think legally Paul's right. And I think politically, maybe you're right. I mean, legally, in the Reconstruction era, there were federal prosecutors who brought civil actions to oust officials who had been elected and linked to the Confederacy. And in some cases, Congress refused to seat members. Now, that's a prerogative that Congress retains. It, we're not talking about Congress in this case. We're talking about the presidency. But Congress can oust people. They, they ousted Jim Traficant in the 2000s after his convictions. And that was solely at their discretion. After his what? After, After his, his convictions, convictions. But, that, but that had nothing to do with it. that had nothing to do with it. And they and, and Jim Traficant, by the way, a Democrat and the, the the member of Congress who rose to defend him to not be ousted was a Republican. Very different time. Mr. La Tourette, actually, uh, one of the great Republican members of Congress who sadly died a few years ago. I, so and and there is precedent for um, Congress rejecting and refusing to seat someone on the basis of accusations. Legally, Paul's right. But I, I got to say that right now, right now, and I could be persuaded either way, I'm kind of more persuaded by your argument, Alicia, politically, which is I just think this would go badly. I'm not pulling a Lindsey Graham here and saying, oh, you know, we can't do anything against Trump or there will be riots in the streets. I mean, that is probably true, by the way. I mean, he's not he's not just whistling Dixie. He's yet. not wrong. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, and we I'm know not, he likes to whistle Dixie. Yeah, go. Go ahead. I'm not speaking politically, by the way. I'm speaking patriotically. But you just said something right. interesting. The right of Congress. That'll to be not, first. The right of Congress to not want to seat someone because there's accusations of wrongdoing. Isn't that what got us to this point in the first place? Yeah. January 6th at all. No, no, no. I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, I am. I, I am a judicial system absolutist. I don't believe in vigilante justice of any kind. I don't believe in cancellation on social media. I don't believe in rough justice out there. I believe in due process. So I think not from a legal standpoint where I think Paul is right. Shoot, he's the he's the former assistant attorney general. I, of course he's right. But I think from a I think from a political standpoint it would do more harm than good and it would only make him a political martyr. The only thing that I, I, I kind of hold in reserve there is, look, I made an argument in Newsweek back in October that, you know, if you have a, a disaster looming, you know, a wildfire bearing down on your house, you don't sit around. And it's like, well, should I take my neighbor's well water? I'm not sure. Maybe, you know, like if, if we're really worried that America is going to catch on fire in 2024, maybe we should do absolutely everything we can. Not if we want to keep calling ourselves a democracy. Yeah, I it's it's a tough one. I, I, I I'm not sure that there's a clear answer on this one. Just so people know what we're talking about, ultimately, is this would all end up in court. 
because what progressive groups are doing is they're reaching out to secretaries of state and they're trying to keep Trump off the ballot in individual states. And that would surely become a matter of litigation. And so there would be some kind of invocation of, of the judicial system. The courts would get involved in this. But I I think ultimately I'm I'm sort of most compelled by the argument that this is a political problem. If we have a growing boil on the face of American democracy in the form of MAGA Trump fascists, we have to lance it. And we're not going to do that by maneuvering and keeping Donald Trump off the ballot in a handful of states and creating a martyr cause for him. We're going to do it by defeating these people and winning the political argument. And on that note, that's the end of this political argument. For Paul and Alicia, I'm Matt Robeson. We will see you 